This is a presentation of the Pitch Podcast Network. How is everyone doing today? Um, really thrilled about the holiday. Uh, really thrilled about the complicated week in justice. Uh, so much to unpack. Not today. Not today. We can uh, we can just take it easy. We have a fun, breezy show for you. Uh, I'm talking to Enrique from Making Movies uh, about how his band is going to be playing the Truman in December. Uh, and they will be covering Radiohead's Kid A in its entirety. Uh, and something we didn't get into uh, in the interview uh, that's worth sharing is that uh, if you are of a particular age where in the late 90s and early thousands, you were uh, perhaps less than legally downloading music, uh, you were often getting things that were mislabeled. Uh, they would be said to be like, a leaked song from Blur or System of a Down, and it was really just some guy's band in San Francisco or Canada, and they'd put that name on it, and so everyone downloaded it. Amongst some of my friends, there's a number of these tracks that were like, oh, did you ever track down who it is? Because like, it's a song we listened to hundreds of times when we were dumb teenagers and thought that we were ahead of the curve on something. Anyway, uh, this all led to... <laughs> A friend of mine in high school named Alyssa, and her and her brother were much better at downloading music and finding the real deep cuts. Uh, and one day, about two weeks before Radiohead's new album was going to come out, Kid A, uh, she brought me a CD and was like, hey, we found it. We have the new album. And because I had twisted myself into this whole like mindset of like, I, I don't trust any of this, um, that collided with... Radiohead's Kid A, which, if you know the album, Radiohead went from being a band with three guitars to suddenly being a band with no guitars and some electronic drums and some atonal sounds. Um, and I remember sneaking out of high school to go sit in my car and play that CD because I was like, I get to listen to the new Radiohead album. They haven't put anything out in like four years. This is this is the most important day. And I got about halfway through and then went back and was actually angry at my friend, like in front of a class of people uh, for, for how I'd been deceived and how this was very obviously not what it was. Um, yes, yes, it was. It was Radiohead's Kid A. It was ahead of its time in a way that it was going to take me a year or two to catch up with uh, now 20 years later one of my favorite albums ever uh also it just really sucks to say it's 20 years old uh i can feel that in my bones not the greatest feeling <laughs> anyway i'm very excited to see making movies cover it mostly because i've seen their cover of the similar era i might be wrong by radiohead and they made it into sort of a fun party jam and so i'm very excited to see them take on one of the bleakest albums of all time and uh, and really give it their own spin. So really excited to talk uh, with Enrique later in the show about that. We have Nick's Music Corner as always, but first up, uh, our friend Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment has a reading of Emily Cox's Love Language. Love Language, a romance for the books 
by Emily Cox. Kansas City has another feather in its cap. One of our own has become the first black author for Harlequin Historical's line of romance novels. While Harlequin has published black authors' contemporary stories over the years, the historical series has been the province of white authors since it launched in 1988. 1,604 paperbacks later, Harlequin published A Blues Singer to Redeem Him by L. Jackson, the pen name of Dana Jackson, in August of this year. Jackson, from Kansas City, Kansas, never expected to be the first black person writing for this series. I was amazed. I did not believe it at first. Surely that's not true, says Jackson. I know that it's changing, but good grief, it's 2021. As a kid who loved to read, Jackson discovered that there weren't many stories with people who looked like her, who shared her experiences. That was one of the main reasons I wanted to become a writer, she says. I was determined that I was going to add to the diversity in literature. And now she has contributed to the massively read Harlequin imprint with a blues singer to redeem him, a love story set in Kansas City in the 1920s. The novel features a black female blues singer who survived the Tulsa massacre and an Italian man from a mob family who owns a club. Jackson was inspired to write about Prohibition-era Kansas City after a tour at Tomstown Distilling Company, where they discussed the history of that time. As she researched, she learned about the Tulsa Race Massacre that happened in 1921, during which white people burned, bombed, and massacred black folks in the affluent Greenwood District. It was kind of a shock to my system, honestly, to learn about the Tulsa Massacre as an adult, says Jackson. Many people remain unaware of this violent act of white supremacy, thanks to its exclusion from school syllabi. One hundred years after the massacre, it remains just like Jackson's character Evelyn says in the book. It's like it never happened. No one was ever prosecuted for the murders or the destruction. The papers reported on it only briefly, and then nothing. It's like Greenwood never existed, like we never existed. Jackson seeks to honor the survivors by representing their stories in fiction. To tell their stories appropriately, you can't leave out the violence. While this book still gives us the feel-good finale guaranteed by Happy Ending Assured or HEA romance novels, the violence, fear, and trauma that the book deals with sets it apart from your average fluffy romance. The book opens during the Tulsa Massacre, and the first sentence gets right to it. Evelyn LaRoque had never smelled human flesh burn. Jackson isn't exploring sweet, simple love connections free from the obstacles of real life. She embraces telling the story of the very real violence that black folks faced in the 1920s, and in many ways continue to face today. My editor did push back on how violent my book was, so I had to take some of that out, says Jackson. So what's left is actually a tame version of what I initially wrote. People are like, L. Jackson doesn't shy away from the horror of that time. And I think that's funny. Like, y'all should have read the earlier version. Spoilers are coming. In the face of violence, the book's heroine stands strong. When she is kidnapped by Klansmen and faces the possibility of rape, she grabbed at the knife strapped to her thigh. She would fight, and they would be forced to kill her. That would be an admirable death. While the book's hero, Lorenzo, has some patriarchal inclinations towards saving and protecting Evelyn, she makes it clear she does not need him to do so. When Lorenzo tries to make decisions for her, she says, I'm just tired of men who think they can dictate what I should and shouldn't do. Evelyn is a survivor who is empowered by taking care of herself and finally finding the pleasure and safety that she deserves. Trauma can alter one's sense of safety with others, when what can be most healing is a connection with others. Feeling safe with someone in the aftermath of a traumatic event is a powerful feeling. Jackson touches on that. When Evelyn did allow herself to care for someone, which was extremely hard to do given what had happened to her friends and family in Greenwood, she couldn't just pretend that there was nothing between them. While she struggles with how to handle her growing feelings for Lorenzo, Evelyn also embraces opportunities for pleasure with open arms. 
It didn't have to mean anything, a blues singer reads. She was grown, and she could have fun with a nice man without it having to mean anything. She hated how women had this unrealistic expectation of being prudish. Marrying wasn't something she ever wanted. She just wanted to be able to take care of her grandmother and sing. To see Evelyn pursue pleasure, joy, and care feels powerful as we live in a society that judges and scolds black women for enjoying themselves and their lives. After a sexual encounter between Evelyn and Lorenzo, the novel reads, After all life had thrown at her, she deserved to have this pleasure. Still, there were significant obstacles facing Evelyn and Lorenzo's love. At that time, miscegenation, or interracial relationships, were illegal in the United States. The consequences for breaking anti-miscegenation laws were more severe for Evelyn as a black woman than Lorenzo, a white man. Evelyn's grandmother even warns Lorenzo of how dangerous it is to be in an interracial relationship. Evelyn wished there was a world where they could have feelings for each other and not be committing a crime, the novel reads. Evelyn needed to be a rule follower. Most of the time her life depended on her doing the right thing and not being caught in situations where she might be accused of a crime. Placing an interracial romance at the heart of this story was always part of Jackson's plan. Black women in society have gotten the short end of the stick, she says. I just wanted to highlight black women as beauty. It's a story about love, and black women are seen as beautiful by all races. The book loses some of its nuance in discussing racism of the era and its portrayal of the KKK as backward outsiders. At one point it reads, Lorenzo's family now controlled the politicians, the police department, and the city's transportation but the KKK was a group of ignorant idiots who obviously had a death wish. It's strange to read this sentence that suggests politicians, police, and lawmakers are separate from the hooded white supremacists when that has historically not been the case. While the politics of Kansas City and the book diverge from our actual history, Jackson isn't writing a textbook here. She is a romance author seeking to tell the story of an empowered black woman opening herself up to love after trauma. A previous editor, however, insisted that Jackson's work appeal primarily to a black audience. That wasn't what Jackson was aiming for. I was like, why? Jackson asks. She was like, primarily only black people are going to read your books. Well, okay, that's going to be a problem for me that you think that, because I'm not writing black stories. I'm just writing stories. She adds, it took me forever to even put my writing out there. I was just afraid it wasn't good enough and people weren't going to read it because I'm a black author and they think black authors can't write. For Jackson, there's added pressure to come out of the gate with a strong debut. You feel like you can't just be good, you've got to be the best, she says. And if you're not, they're going to be like, yep, see, that's why we don't have any black authors. Not that Harlequin would do that at all, but I'm afraid that if my book doesn't do really well, other black authors aren't going to have a chance. Jackson's job isn't an easy one. The historic element, in the historical romance, is an unbelievably complicated topic. How does one envelop hundreds of years of oppression as the foundation of a love story? For a truly impossible task, Jackson has fired the first salvo in a series that is long overdue for covering issues it has, perhaps, feared tackling. L. Jackson is both making history and making history. And now it's Nick's Music Corner. Hello, I'm Nick's basic music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. Back in March, we spoke with former Kansas Cityan Taylor Lenz about her first two singles, Tease and Perfect, and her journey from School of Rock in KC to making hit singles in LA following her degree in musical composition from the Los Angeles College of Music. She's now back with her new single, Boomerang, inspired by a relationship that Lynn's found herself going back to over and over again. Written in her car in about five minutes before heading into the studio where the track was produced by Grammy Award winner Zach Jurek, Boomerang is another earworm of a cut from Lynn's. 
showcasing her voice and ability to craft a hook which instantly has you singing along, it's, as the kids say, a bop. Equally light in its production while getting dark lyrically. Boomerang is now streaming everywhere, and you can follow Lens on Instagram at Taylor Lens and on Twitter at Taylor Lens Music. Here's Boomerang. Okay, okay, and it is time for my interview with Enrique, as promised. Welcome to the show. Would you introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, my name is Enrique Chi. I'm the lead singer of Making Movies and also the founder of Art as Mentorship, which is the other kind of side of my Kansas City life. That I, well, let's talk about Art as Mentorship first. How long have you been doing that? It depends how you count it, but <laughs> our, band, our band started a music camp to empower um, immigrant kids was the was the initial intention, but the really, you know, underrepresented young people. We didn't know that language 10 years ago. We just were kind of uh, sweaty and smelly punk kids who wanted to do something good for the community. And we put together this music camp, asked the Maddie Road Center, could we bar your space for a week and offer a free music camp to to all the, uh, the kids in the neighborhood and put out flyers and it was a beautiful beginning. 15 kids showed up. We had a great time. And the next year, 45 kids showed up. And all of a sudden we were 
we were in over our heads and <laughs> we're scrambling to figure out how do we make this camp fun for all these different skill sets, um, all these different folks from different communities. There were like Somalian refugees who are in this neighborhood and the historic Northeast and, and Mexican-American immigrants. And also a few families had driven in from the burbs because they knew our band. And right in that time, our band was starting to catch some momentum. And uh, we were like, how the hell do we make this cool for all these kids? And we just decided to focus on songwriting as a way to just level the playing field and, and make and it, kind it started of a, out as like individual instrument time. And then you were like, we could just do songwriting for the group. <laughs> we could just do songwriting for the group. And yeah, we were, in, we were improvising and inventing. We just wanted to do something good. And, and we, we, uh, we were, we're looking, you know, like, what is it like necessities of mother of invention? We yes. invented <laughs> what would become the rebel song Academy. And in, in a, that Monday evening, when we had a call with all the teachers being like, what do we do so tomorrow's not a disaster? Because that was a crazy, a crazy roller coaster. Well, fast forward um, a couple of years, we we are curating our own um, music community festival at Knuckleheads. We bring Hooray for the Riff Raff to town and ask her to do a songwriting workshop for the kids that we had been working with, and uh, in advance of the show. So at the back of Knuckleheads, at during the day, we had twenty five young songwriters show up. And I feel like that moment was the genesis of what would become Artist Mentorship's flagship program, the Rebel Song Academy. And, you know, I finally had the guts to start it off for profit. I was very um, apprehensive about all that. It seemed like thing, a bunch of a big world I didn't know much about, which is true. I didn't know much about it. Um, but I'm very grateful to, to say that in the last um, three, three years that we've been a not-for-profit, it's been like three and a half. Um, the, the organization has grown. We built a recording studio during the pandemic. It just got wired up this, this week, last night, um, had our first session with a youth band that formed during our ignition camp this, this uh, summer. And next year, we're going to be doing year round programming at multiple sites. One, we're getting our own space off 20th and Vine to be in connected to that music history location. We have the recording studio in downtown Overland Park. And we're entering a new challenge, which is, all right, how do we do what we did accidentally, accidentally on purpose, where we're combining kind of inner city neighborhoods, diverse neighborhoods, and because of the bands like Rapport, um, getting kids from other communities to come and become friends with, with these other f young people from different communities just through music. That happened organically at our camp from the beginning. And now we're intentionally doing it by having a programming site on the east side having a recording studio in downtown Old Villain Park and creating an ecosystem where the kids that the, the kids from both parts of, of the community are interacting with one another. Um, so we're, we're really pumped. We're going to announce in 2022, a full year of programming, um, the Rebel Song Academy in the spring, the um, ignition camp early summer, a three week intensive boot camp. We're calling it the artist mentorship all-stars for kids to kind of get, up to snuff for performances and then we will launch re relaunch our festival as celebrate americana in september of 2022 i'm really close to locking in the date and our headliner so hopefully in the next you know 48 hours we could even have that information too and that all is it's it's all part of one big story of elevating and empowering these young people and remembering through music our shared identity and and that all like it, it all feeds into each other because the kids will perform at the festival. The festival raises money for the kids. That day where we did the festival at Knuckleheads, 
we, we had launched the not-for-profit in 2017 and um, we raised, I think 13 grand, which at, at the time seemed like a, a million dollars. When you actually start running a not-for-profit 13 grand is like, Oh, well that's gone in two seconds. Okay. Um, but the, that we raised 13 grand and, and we did a 12 week songwriting program with the money that we raised that day. So it's been a, a labor of love, but now it's an organization that employs five people, including two members of the greeting committee and I'm super pumped to be a part of other artists um, making a living through music. I really like that you're setting up a system where uh, a lot of kids that normally would have had a high school band made up of only kids from their same high school uh, might be creating city, inner city uh, sort of bands sort of crossing all those neighborhoods. That sounds like you're really empowering a generation of uh, new crossover musicians. <laughs> Trying to, you know, this town, um, and, and there's a lot of love for this town, obviously for me, you know, growing up here and, and making it, calling it home, really this, this sense moving from Panama. But if we're honest, it's a segregated city. It's a really segregated city. And you see it in, in all spaces. You see it in music, but it's a really, a, a, you see it in music because it's a reflection of the, of the town. And yeah, I mean, they, they built it into the city. It's in the very streets. <laughs> it's baked in. And so you got you to gotta work hard to un, you know, undo stuff like that. And so for me, that's, that's what's really important. That's what the Americana Project is all about. It's kind of, it's our love letter to these heroes of American music that if they were Black or immigrant or indigenous or something like that, they may have not gotten the same light or time uh, to shine in, in kind of the, the public eye. And that project, which is a collaboration between artist mentorship and the band, um, really leans into that space. So we made a documentary with PBS that we talked to some Memphis musicians about their stories, uh, like Deborah Barnes, who sang with Ray Charles, Al Green, who played in, or Al Green's organist, Reverend Hodges, who played on all the hits, with Al Green and some Cedric Burnside, a legendary blues musician, the grandson of, of, of R.L. Burnside. And we made this documentary about these stories and we're gonna to continue to do this work um, because I think that music is a super valuable tool for undoing things like that because it's just like, it, it disengages triggers for people. You know, you're like, uh -huh. no, I'm not, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about history. I'm not talking about, no, I'm not talking about racism. I'm not talking about segregation. I'm talking about music. Tell me the story. What What was the story for Al Green? We're talking to Boo Mitchell. Willie Mitchell, his dad recorded Al Green stuff. And Willie's like, or Boo's talking about Willie saying, yo, my dad, you know, my, my dad, uh, he didn't have the chance to engineer in here because he was black and the owner of the studio was a Klansman. But because he sold enough records, he bought rights to the studio and then he got a chance to engineer. He bought out the other partner. And that's, <laughs> that's why he brought Al Green in Al Green was a young kid and he engineered those records. And it's like, right. Because I'm talking about Al Green, something that kind of we all can love and cherish. Then you just like, you don't turn on like political thought when you hear that story. And, and I think that that's, that's really the, the magic of music is that you can communicate these things and maybe get in the back door on someone who, if you just started from a political sounding angle to get to the same truth, you would be shut down in a, in a split second. But if oh, you tell absolutely. them, I, I want to tell you a story about Al Green, they might not shut you down. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about the band. Um, 
I, I know that you've been filling your time with this project during pandemic. What was it like for the band to not be able to tour? What level of like writing and recording did you do in that period? Or was it all sort of into these other projects? We, we, we stayed busy though. It sounds, we sound quiet, you know, like we have not put out a lot of music. We put out a single or two, but um, we went to Memphis and made a record that I, I think because of the circumstances, I feel really confident is the strongest work of our lives. Um, we had this, the same feeling we had with our first album of like, our life depends on this. You know, our first time <laughs> with Steve, Steve Berlin, um, asked to produce a record he came up to us and said what would you let me produce a record and we like you know jaws on the floor like holy smokes yeah um we yeah, felt that like doesn't this... happen to people often no <laughs> no no and we 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 felt like this has to count you know like if we never make a record again this one has to be great like who knows if this opportunity will come again it did we've made three records with steve but um with this new record everything shut down it was just our manager and us in memphis we we had a relationship with a with a great organization there that had an artist residency program. So they had these like little hotel room ish, hostel ish spaces for artists. They had shut uh -huh. down the whole the whole program, so that wing of the building had not been entered by any other people. And so COVID was super scary, but we felt like we could sneak off, enter this empty wing of a building, and create a little bubble for ourselves and make a record and we did and um we we're gearing up to to release it or like midway through 2022 we were actually finishing our third music video in december for the project um, we've already made two and we're cooking up for um, the biggest international touring that we've ever been able to do we we got invited to vive latino which is the coachella of mexico you know headliners like the pixies and and the Black Pumas, but also a slew of Latin American artists that are headlining this event. Um, and we've never been on on that level of stage. You know, we right. we, we kind of live in this um, highly respected arts world thing. Like like um, people invite us to to niche festivals and boutique kind of like world music festivals and things like that in the United States. Um, but have not cracked the Lollapalooza, Bonnaroo, Coachella circuit. And in Mexico, we just cracked it open. So next year we have two that are at that level and maybe we'll, maybe a couple of those will arise. And it's um, incredibly exciting. So we're, we are grinding hard to elevate the band to that level because, it, you know, that's another moment where it's like you don't get, you don't get a whole lot of swings at that. So we got to crush it with this, this opportunity. Um. So that brings us to the, the show that you're doing uh, in mid-December, um, where you are covering the entirety of Radiohead's Kid A. Um, what, an, what an odd project to tackle. Um, you, you guys, as part of the, uh, the bridge anniversary, uh, did just an absolutely shit-kicking rock version of I Might Be Wrong. Uh, and I was like, okay, I, I see absolutely what they're taking on here, but also like, that seems to be like the least performance friendly album for a rock band uh, to approach. Uh, why Kid A? <laughs> well, um, the, the bridge session was, was like the inspiration. You know, Radiohead, I, I don't know if Bobcats listeners can hear me pouring a coffee here. 
but uh, can you hear that through my earbuds? I'm pouring myself some it, coffee. It, it makes it more real. We now sound like an NPR show. <laughs> nice, nice, good, good. We, well, all right, so the, the story goes like this. We, three years ago at the Truman, we wanted to do something special. We were like, what if we played a set of our own music and then took on a, a classic album? I've heard of other bands doing it. Like, I think the Flaming Lips did that at a few shows. And I always thought that was super cool just to do a snapshot. Deer Tick does a weird thing where they do Deervana and they'll do like a Nirvana album randomly. And at one of their shows and like, I was like, man, damn, that would be, that would be super fun. We should do that sometime. So we tried it. We did the Talking Heads Remain in Light. It was a blast. The next year uh-huh. we did The Clash and then pandemic shut down. And so we're able to come back to the Truman and we're trying to figure out what album to do. And then the bridge asked us to do something from 20 years ago because Kid A and Amnesia, Amnesiac came out around that, or right, 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 20, right at 20 years ago, 20, right. 2021. And we tried it out. And we, at first, we didn't know what we were going to do with this tune. I know that my <laughs> bandmates were like, were like, they're not super, like Juan Carlos is not super familiar with all of Radiohead's catalog. I'm, I'm pretty familiar. I grew up listening to that stuff. And he's like, like, oh God, like expecting like a paranoid Android type moment, you know, with like insane complexity. And I might be wrong, but like, oh, we can kind of vibe on this. It's kind of dancing groovy. And then the digger, the more we dug into it, the more complexity it actually had. The looping riff is a is kind of a an optical illusion. It's actually a really complex piece of music. And when we took it on and got it cooking, we're like, damn, this actually feels good. Like, like I'm liking this. <laughs> do you like this? I'm like, yeah, I like this too. So that's when we're like, man, then we should just do a Radiohead, do a Radiohead album. Um, so Kid A is 20 years old. And um, the themes, I mean, some of these lyrics kind of haunting, you know? Um, yeah. The I, idiot- Ice Age, come and let me hear both sides is uh, is shaking me uh, right now. So <laughs> I was about to quote something from Idiot Tech as well. Just like the concept of, of here we have everything all the time, like this social media world that, that, was, that was not even conceivable back then. It seemed like Tom York had tapped into uh oh, it's coming. Hello, <laughs> Every, I, 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 like, do you, are we all okay with this? Like, here we're allowed everything all the time, and and everybody's going to be miserable. And I think that that that's kind of the 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 reality, you know. Like, like we we are overstimulated, and and he speaks to that so much on that on that record. It has been very challenging, but we our goal is to perform it. We're, we're kind of a party band in a way. When you come see a gig, you can dance and and have a good time. Uh-huh. And, and uh, we want to deliver it with that same kind of exuberance and joyfulness, though the music was created in a more like digital, you know, it sounds like it came out of a digital winter to me. Um, so it's, and, it's been fun. And, and I can tell that you guys can pull that off based on the, the I, might, I might be wrong track because I called people into my office to be like, did you know this era of Radiohead could be fun? Like they cracked it. They figured it out. It took 20 years, but like, that's the most fun that song's ever been. And I imagine that the, that Kid A will be a, a lot of that in live performance. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate that comment. That, that, that means a lot. Yeah, that's how I felt too. And that's how we've been feeling. So some, some things we're going to flip them a little bit, you know, like we're going to do a, a folkloric instrumentation, um, a Panamanian instrument called a mejorana and this hybrid of Mexican guitar, harana and a, and a Venezuelan cuatro that Juan Carlos plays. And for how to disappear completely, it's instead of a, a strummed steel string acoustic guitar, like a folk thing, we're going to do a folkloric Latin American 
rendition. Some of the pieces we're going to just do them as they are. Like Optimistic is just a banger. It just works as a rock and roll song and we're going to just deliver it as a rock and roll song. And then others, we're grabbing the concept and we're, and we're turning them into, into dancing numbers, you know, that, that we can, that we can kind of just play as a, as a, like, like as if it was, you know, the, the end of a festival or something like that. You're just, you're just having, having a good time with the music. So it's been fun. And, and we're inviting a rotating cast of special guests. We can, um, we have them all confirmed. I'll definitely pass that information to you because we'll get a couple extra instrumentalists to join us on the stage to fill out some of the arrangements. What day is the show? Uh, where is it at? And uh, how can people be following your work? The show is December 18th at the Truman. We would so greatly appreciate it if everyone listening came out. Um, it It's going to be a, you know, a mask and a proof of vaccine situation. So it's it, we're making it as safe as, as we can. And since we haven't been performing as much, it just means a lot to us. From a heart place, it means a lot to us. It's going to have Kansas City come out and support. But being honest from a financial place, it's like, pivotal you know like we need this this gig to work because because it's been an economically challenging couple of years but um but you can support it really easily just go to makingmovies.world and get tickets there um and you can follow us makingmovies.world can point you to all our socials but uh i have been a little allergic to social media in the past and i have made a determination to be more active it's like my new year's resolution in, in, in advance because we're putting out an album. We need to talk to the folks who, who care about us. And, and uh, so I'm on socials. I'm on Instagram quite a bit. You can just bug me there and I will respond to you. I, I don't think I've ever heard somebody say that their new year's resolution was to do more social media, but I do understand that it is for business purposes. Um, any chance well, that this show will be recorded for a live album? <laughs> Um, yeah, actually, we are talking to Mandolin, a company that does live streams, and so they would need to be taping anyhow to do to do a live stream of it. Um, and so that that is a that is a that is a, a plan that's bubbling. So I'll, I'll keep you updated on that. Fantastic. Any chance that you're doing Amnesiac in its totality as an encore? No, is that on <laughs> not on the table? I think I think not in its totality as an encore. Okay. But it, but maybe a song might creep into the set. Oh, that would be that would be the worst. I would hate that. Well, I'm looking forward to the show. It's, it, uh, I've been spending too much time with Kid A recently as part of a uh, the 20 year look back. So when you guys announced that you were doing it live, I was like, well, hell, I will be at that for sure. So looking forward to it. Thank you for talking to us today. I appreciate it. Nice to meet you, um, and I look forward to seeing you at the show. I'll see you there. Thanks. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the Streetwise podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Brock Wilbur. Please check out thepitchkc.com where we are putting up new cool stuff each and every day. Uh, check out our magazine. Uh, there should be a new one on stands in just two or three days. Uh, a bunch of exciting changes coming up at the pitch that I cannot wait to tell you about. Anyway, take care of each other out there pitching, and we will make it through. Bye, 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 bye. This was a production of the Pitch Podcast Network. 
The Pitch is Kansas City's independent source for news and culture. Check out thepitchkc.com to see more podcasts from us, including information for how to subscribe to The Pitch or become a sustaining member. Story ideas or feedback? Write to tips at thepitchkc.com. Pitch in and we'll make it through.